everybody talk pill time again uh are the people doing sea shanties on tiktok this is a cultural appropriation honestly from uh from coastal uh salt dogs and i will not stand for it i'm triggering people by drinking a white claw i'm embodying becky hood i have become becky destroyer of worlds that's me so apparently people are starting to post out-of-context uh, clips from the streams to try to uh, cancel me, but my takes are just too strong and correct to uh, to be canceled. So once again, uh, cannot be defeated. Sorry. You're not going to get me because my every word and sentence and expression is a perfectly crafted conceptual uh, item. And none of it is going to be, uh, you can do nothing but try to squint at it to try to find out, to try to make up something. And sorry, sorry, folks, for the discerning online denizen, there's just no way for it to uh, hold water. So, boom. So I'm, I'm always... Uh, I always feel validated when people try to own me for my posts and my correct statements, but they can't because they're correct. And uh, that is the defense. They say the best, the the pure, the pure defense against reliable is the truth, right? Well, there we go. I cannot be held accountable. Can't do it. Of course, this quote would be great pulled out after I've been held accountable somehow. Could happen, but right now I don't think so. Right now, there's no way I could possibly be held accountable. Cannot hold me accountable. Cannot hold me to account. Cannot be held accountable. Cannot hold me to account. I can't be held accountable. You cannot hold me to account. I will not be held accountable. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot hold me. You cannot hold me. You cannot hold me to account. There you go. Make that my uh, ringtone. Go pack indeed. Uh, all right. So apparently they might impeach him, actually, on the 19th, which would be hilarious. And that would, make, that would make sense because the whole argument for impeachment right now is that it is symbolically important to show a line that you can't cross. And I could definitely see Republicans getting behind, establishment Republicans especially, getting behind making that a bright line because it, does, it looks a little dicier and less under, uh, controllable than a lot of them are probably happy with. But they're going to want to string it out as long as possible. And they're going to want to reduce antagonizing these people as long as possible. So doing it symbolically like an hour before he leaves office would be perfect. The perfect sort of thing that looks like action and people can convince themselves is proof that our de democratic structures work. But is in every respect just stage managed bit of public relations. Yes, yes. I know impeachment and removal are different. But they could remove him too. Like an hour before he's supposed to leave anyway. Although, that's a lot of senators. That's a lot of senators. And yes, the senators are less... Uh, less vulnerable, obviously. But, you know, a third of them 
presumably a number of Republicans, although not that many, because it's a very bad map for Democrats next time on the Senate. And honestly, the fact that they, they had a great map this time, and the fact that they were able to, what, get to 50-50 was honestly a disaster for them. And it means they're definitely going to lose the Senate in two years. Unless, of course, you know, they're able to hang this around their neck and everybody cares about this and it becomes the new political litmus test for, uh, you know, seriousness. And I don't know. We'll see about that. But you don't want to have to run for re-election in two years having voted to kick him out of office. Guaranteed, guaranteed you're done. And, you know... A lot of these senators, it's like, that's not the worst thing in the world. Oh, you lose your you lose your spot. Oh, no, now I have to get a pay bump to be a, a lobbyist. This is terrible. It'll be interesting to see, certainly. If we do get... I got to say, though, as I said last time, if you're worried about this whole thing breaking down, then you clearly don't get it. Because this is bad news. Everything is on a trajectory to shit. And, I mean, a world where you don't feel like there's nothing to do but post, isn't that a more, isn't that a more vital life? Even if it's scarier, at least you're scared of, like, real stuff. You're not just scaring yourself about computer narratives. But like I said, more than anything, that's why I don't think that there's going to be some sort of catastrophic co confrontation, because it would be too destabilizing. And I don't think that there's any real reason to believe that uh, the the choke points and the uh, in, uh, the choke points and the coercive and seductive mechanisms of power that currently exist are in any way been undermined or compromised to a permanent end by uh, the shit fit in the Capitol last week. I'm not blaming anybody for posting. I'm a poster. Uh, I'm, a poor, I'm, a, I'm a pure posting machinery. Took all of my uh, energies and put them out there. I don't recommend it for everybody. R.I.P. to a real one, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, you know, my first gig opening for him at a uh, at a Mossad torture cave that he was uh, visiting, that he had funded personally. Yeah, a real rest in piss, Sheldon Adelson. But of course, you know, he's got the world he wanted. He got he got a untrammeled Israel that's able to do uh, Yakubitsky uh, Yaka, and reform Zionism. Congratulations. They got their iron wall. And now he gets to go to... Uh, he doesn't even get to go to heaven, right? There's, is there, is, there's not a Jewish heaven. They name a bunch of stuff after Jabotinsky, that's it. They name a bunch of stuff after him in Israel. So he gets that instead going to heaven. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to say about, elaborate on yesterday that I forgot when I was talking about the beautiful boaters, and I was talking about the, the regional barons who make up our, you know, lumpen ruling class out in the hinterlands. The real divide, as we know now, like demographically uh, and electorally and politically and culturally, is between urban and rural areas. And the suburbs are the liminal area between them. And like the Democrats' uh, gains for Biden mostly came in those suburbs, where those, lim those people, those, those knowledge economy workers who aren't the hipsters who fill up gentrified neighborhoods, who want to be out in the suburbs and want to have a house but work in a professional capacity, uh, are moving towards the Democrats because of how unhinged and um, and ira erratic and irrational the Republicans are being. Of course, that's not every one of these white suburbanites. The ones who work in things like, I don't know, law enforcement? They are hardening in their, other, in their position otherwise. But anyway, that's the liminal space. And the thing about these rural areas is, you know, um, they, are, they have towns in them, they have cities, but they're just, they're smaller... They're more provincial, 
Uh, and the people who live there are really cocooned in this culture. And what they all have in common is that those places used to be where people farmed and where people, where farming and agriculture still occur, but not on the family plots that used to be there. The, the yeoman smallholding farmer would, that was the model American citizen and, and, uh, and for whom America was created ostensibly, that survived as obviously it's survived as the mental idea of freedom that, that reactionaries have to this day in America, but it survived much longer than a lot of people think in the country itself. You didn't see the real collapse of smallholding farming in America. I mean, obviously, you saw a big move away from agricultural labor to urban uh, labor as technology decreased the amount of human inputs that were required to farm, but you still had family farms. And it wasn't until the 80s uh, and the work of uh, guys like Ed Butts, who was uh, Reagan's racist agricultural secretary, Earl Butts, rather, not Ed, sorry, Earl Butts, uh, helped create a, a, a modern agricultural subsidy program that it, it doomed the small farm for the most part. There still are small farmers around the country, and they are, as smallholders everywhere are, deeply reactionary. But the people who used to have those farms got, they didn't all go to the city and learn how to code. They stayed around and became sort of a resentful uh, and unmanned, you know, uh, uh, removed from like the matrix of, uh, of sufficiency and uh, uh, self-sufficiency and self, uh, you know, actualization that they used to, that used to be a possibility uh, for agricultural, uh, for people who own farms, people who were able to buy some land and, and work it. Now that's mostly ConAgra and, and Archer Daniels Midland and Monsanto. And, and a lot of it is, and a lot of the actual labor is performed by Immigrants, illegal, many of them uh, illegally, uh, illegally employed, and the people who used to farm that are still there. And the only story they hear is the story of the mad little crimson kings who run those little fiefdoms, and they have all directed their psychic energy towards the big crimson king in the White House. I, I guess he's in the White House. Okay, this is actually something that's trip uh, freaking me out. A little bit is about how Trump has not been heard from since they took his Twitter account away. He's the president. He could just step out onto the Rose Garden and there'd be reporters there in five minutes and he could just start riffing. He hasn't demanded to go on TV. He hasn't done a press conference. Has he made a public statement? He, I, I know they're saying he's going to go to the Alamo or apparently Alamo, Texas, which is a town. Just the stupidest people on earth. They don't know what the Alamo is. They know Alamo. That's where they fought the Mexicans. Alamo, Texas. Building. Uh, town. We don't know. So did he say anything today? But the fact that he's having it in San Antonio or in Alamo really shows you that he has run up the red white flag. And it'll be interesting to see how long it takes for these people to get it that he has get thrown in the towel. Because he'd stay in Washington if he really wanted to press this thing. You might do it at an Alamo rental car a lot. That'd be funny. Like the, I mean, the Four Seasons thing in Philadelphia will still be, not be topped for pure Iannucci. That is pure uncut Iannucci. The Four Seasons. Oh, uh, Four Seasons Lawn Supply by the air by the fucking airport. I do wonder if somebody slapped him. Like I wonder if one of the Joint Chiefs just hit him in the face. That would be funny. I would not... Somebody's asking about who would be the protagonist of the Mothman movie. I would not really want it to have a traditional protagonist. I would want it to be more... Um, more removed and more... Uh, pointillist, I guess. Like, incidents... Not really a, and a, like, with a cost of characters that maybe has a through line, like Keel would certainly be in a lot of it, but I wouldn't want them to be, like, have an interiority necessarily. I'm not going to apologize. Not going to happen. It is amazing kind of when they try to get me canceled. I'm just such a nice boy. You can't do it. I'm a nice boy with correct takes. You can't get too mad at me. Or, the, and, the, and, the, and then when you do, you just look unhinged.
Everyone who gets mad at me just looks uh, like they have spent too much time online. I saw that Red Letter Media is going to do a review of The Blob. People are saying more and more, folks. The Blob, tremendous. People, the horror, the sci-fi horror remakes of the 80s, people talk about a lot. Like, the thing is obviously now, I mean, I'm sure John Harper would have, John Carpenter would have really appreciated it if people back then liked it as much as they do now. But the king is, the, the thing is a towering achievement, and it's one of the big reasons that I cannot credit anybody who argues that Ridley Scott isn't a hack because, oh, he made Alien. I'm sorry, The Thing is better than Alien, and it came out like two years later. It's not even the best sci-fi horror movie of like the three-year period that it came out in. I am not fucking interested in hearing about Alien compared to fucking The Thing. And of course, Cronenberg's The Fly, great movie. Be afraid, be very afraid. Snapping the arm, puking on the donut, shotgun to the head, can't beat it. But The Fucking Blob, man, written by Frank Darabont, doesn't have, I, I can't even remember who directed it, not a, uh, not a auteurist thing that has been uh, recaptured, but in my opinion, as good as those movies. And in terms of its special effects, maybe a little better. The blob in that movie is so fucking good. And my favorite thing about that film, narratively, is how nasty it is, how it kills several characters who are set up as the protagonist of the movie early on, how it kills a kid. It's a pimp movie, and it rules. It, it lost money. It's another movie that failed. So I guess the only one of those that succeeded at the time was The Fly, because I think The Fly was a success. Tremors is a perfect movie. Come on. Yeah, Frank Darabont and uh, Chuck Russell wrote the screenplay. Who And the director was Chuck Russell, who made... Uh, he made Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, which I have not seen since I was a kid. He directed Eraser with Schwarzenegger? Your luggage. And The Scorpion King. Wow. That is, a, that is an interesting career. Uh, he directed The Mask, too. Oh, smoking. Not alrighty then. Smoking. And he directed Fringe, the TV show Fringe. I Am Wrath, that terrible Travolta ripoff of uh, Death Wish, which I watched with Will last year. I don't think we even got through the whole thing. God damn. How the hell do you... How do you make one great movie and then never hit, the, hit it again? You probably don't know why your movie is good, honestly. But anyway, The Blob, great film. I feel like somebody says the, the mask is cringe now. I don't know if that's true. I feel like the mask has made a comeback because once you get through all the levels of irony, you are back to Looney Tunes. You're back to a guy hitting himself on the, with a, on the head with a cartoon mallet. It's the only thing you can do once you've you know, gotten too sophisticated in your comedy and anti-comedy stylings. Eraser came out the same year as uh, Mission Impossible and has the same plot as Mission Impossible. <coughs> it also has some amazingly terrible CGI crocodiles, which, coming from Chuck Russell, who made one of the great practical effects movies of all time, really does tell you that, the that when they brought in those computers, it really was the death knell for craft in film effects. Your luggage. Your luggage. God, I saw. I didn't watch that whole Schwarzenegger video. I saw that it was seven minutes long. But there is an alternative world, alternative America, where we did not have, uh, where we did not have a constitutional requirement of uh, citizenship or of like native-born citizenship to run for president. And Schwarzenegger, not doesn't replace Trump as like the Republican Party because that is go that was going in the direction it was going no matter what, but as like some sort of um, like high charisma spectacleized codification of like Democrat neoliberalism because at this point he is a Democrat, 
Schwarzenegger is a Democrat. I don't care what he calls himself. He would, I mean, by the time he left office, he, he governed basically as the same way Newsom and, and Brown do. Uh, and he could have, and he could have been like the the counterweight because now we're in this dangerously un uh, balanced situation where Trump is this, you know, this fucking all all father who is able to summon the fucking the the the, the thunder from the depths of the earth with his voice because he's able to connect to people at that level of you know fame and American. Um, the, the classic American con artistry and hustling uh, a charisma. Schwarzenegger has is better than Trump at all of those things. And he could have provided a alternative. Now, not an alternative to, you know, neoliberal hell, just an alternative public expression of like spectacleized politics that could have given something for, uh, for the non-Republican base to care about and for non-Republican non-voters to care about. As it is, stands now, we have this totally vapid uh, Rep- Democratic Party that stands for nothing and isn't able to replicate the spectacular uh, figure of Barack Obama. That was the whole point, as I said before, of that primary. Why they let it go so long and why they risked Bernie winning is because they needed to fucking like throw people out there and have the fucking assholes and I- the tastemakers in Iowa and New Hampshire find the person who could replicate the, 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 the Obama magic. Couldn't be done. There's nobody there. Schwarzenegger could have done it, but with that, with now he can't run for president. He can't run for president here. So, sorry, not going to work. Too bad. Too bad. But like I said, it would still be terrible. It would just. It would be more likely that the Democrats could actually, like, discipline the Republicans and their base. Which we'll see how much they're able to do it. Because, like I said, I think they're terrified of seeing of pushing against the Republicans because they're afraid of them making a decision to just not accept their intimidation, which when you're talking about the Democrats trying to intimidate people, it's very understandable (laughs) why they're like that. Oh, no. Cuba back on the state sponsor of terrorism list. It'll be interesting to see how much of this stuff uh, Biden rolls back and how much they just let there and act like they have no control over. Because remember, guys, ooh, those Florida Cubans and, and, the, and the word socialism, that's what cost them Florida. Someone's asking about uh, the Persian Gulf. Everything been, everybody has sort of been failing, including me, to notice that there's been a very significant buildup of uh, U.S. military and Israeli military op- operations there. Subs run, Israeli subs running around. Israelis, uh, they've been stepping up bombing into Syria. Uh, they assassinated that fucking uh, Iranian nuclear scientist. And the U.S., Nimitz is out there fucking tooling around, just waiting to crash into some boats. And this is all after the secret meeting between Pompeo and MBS, uh, right after which the they declared the Houthis a fucking terrorist organization, which is completely idiotic and, and is going to just get more people killed. Once again, we'll see if Biden bothers to lift a finger on that one. But it seems like what they're trying to do is uh, essentially like lash the tiller to the to the uh, uh, to the door. Uh, and in such a way that ensures that Biden is doesn't have a free hand to reset U.S. policy towards Israel, Iran away from the brinksmanship that it's currently being defined by. And, you know, to which degree Biden even wants to do that is up in the air. But they're ensuring that it won't be up to them, that there will be no way to reverse course by the time they take power. Another great, another real reason, uh, another reason for... Uh, why it's absolutely great that we have a, what, almost three month, yeah, two and a half month, no, almost three months, yes, 
almost three-month period between the presidential election and the inauguration of the winner. Because we have to make sure everybody can get their fucking horse carts to Washington in time. What's amazing is, is that it used to be longer. It used to be March. They didn't change that until, uh, as, until they passed, I believe, the 25th Amendment. Uh, and they just moved it up to January. Just boop, boop. I guess it's like, well, we, you know, we want to give them the whole calendar year. Can you imagine if it was March? If that hadn't changed? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> the 20th, yeah. It's amazing how many of those amendments are just mess are just actually fixing just bureaucratic elements from the original constitution. That's how hastily and shittily drawn that thing was. Such an insane idea to venerate it fetishistically. But of course, it must be pointed out that there is no ideolo there's no content to the uh, constitutional fetishization in this country. Nobody does it because it's just such a great document. They do it because they imagine that it exists to, and they're correct for the most part, that it exists to maintain their privileges. In that respect, it is very similar to the Magna Carta, which we, which is thought of popularly by dullards like the ones who try to say, oh, the Magna Carta says you don't have to wear a mask in me chip shop. Those things are not law rules. Those things are not uh, the prerogatives of regular people. Those are privileges of the barons. And the, and the Constitution exists to maintain baronial privileges in, in, the, in, this, in, a, in a vibrant context of, like, democratic demands from below. Here's your democracy, but here is the guard, guard, guardrails on it well, that will prevent it from actually becoming democratic. You can't right now. I don't have to wear a mask on the lorry. Look at the Magna Carta. It says the king can only tax my wool exports once a fortnight. How many wool exports do you have, you fucking assholes? I do love that they have a constitution in the Britain that is not written down, which makes sense when you consider that the whole thing flows from the common law tradition, which was all just laws made up literally as they went along, which meant that at every level they were attempts to accommodate power as it currently existed. Because that's how you make decisions. It's, oh, here's a new thing. Here's a new challenge. You're not finding some platonic concept. You're not finding a razor-sharp piece of uh, fully persuasive legal reasoning. You are saying, okay, how do we accommodate this conflict with the system as it exists? With the distributive mechanisms we have in place? That is why Napoleon was the good guy. I'm sorry. I mean, obviously he was a he was a megalomaniac and he caused a lot of deaths. But in the battle between the British and the French, I'm sorry, Jack, Captain Jack Aubrey is a reactionary. This is interesting. Someone says in the chat that. Uh, uh, his dad is a const my dad is such a constitutional fetishist he thought the designated survivor in the line of succession was in the 1783 document that's so funny because all it says in the constitution about the state of the union is that once a year the president will be required to uh deliver or to deliver to the congress a um like a statement of of the the nation or whatever it's it the content of it is is totally TBD. The the way that it is presented is completely TBD. It was originally just sent to Congress, written, and then like the sergeant at arms or somebody would read it out loud. Uh, I believe it wasn't until Wilson that the president started delivering it in front of uh, both houses, and then only after that are people like, oh shit, they somebody might blow them all up, somebody might uh, somebody might guy fox their asses. 
There's nothing in the Constitution about anything. It all had to be made on the spot. That is why the only reason it worked is because George Washington was around. George Washington, in, a, in an era when the, the elites of the 13 colonies were all divided by state, which had to ha change, but at the moment it was not. They were individual like ruling elites, political and economic ruling elites. And they all made, wanted, they needed to come together under a federal government if they were going to get their fucking money back that they put into the war effort more than anything. It was, it was a bond, the, the Beards talk about this in the origin of the American Constitution. It was a bunch of bondholders wanting to make sure that they didn't get left holding the bag, which means it was the richest people in all the fucking parts of, in all the states. So they needed a central government, but the thing they were afraid of was not their precious liberties in the way we get told it to us. They were afraid about their prerogatives, their ruling class prerogatives being in any way uh, taken away from them and like abstracted towards a state interest, an interest that was beyond their narrow specific interest, which of course in their minds was the interest of all mankind because they were good enlightenment uh, psychos. And so... There was a Mexican standoff, the, and, and this whole document, it got a lot of resistance. There, were, there was a whole anti-federalist movement against it. The Federalist Papers had to be written to propagandize the thing, because these local power uh, holders, especially the ones who were f most distant from finance capital, like southern landowners, for example, except for guys like George Dub Washington, by the way, who had a ton of fucking, uh, uh, sitting on a ton of bonds, and was actually very cash poor after the revolution, and had a very... In significant uh, economic incentive to get behind central government. And he um, was the man of the revolution. He was the man who beat the British and, most importantly, did not become king after that, who, who went home, became Cincinnatus. And because he'd already done that, he'd already turned down power, everybody who was making the Constitution assumed that you could trust him with this position. And so he just made it up. He made up what presidential powers were as he was president. And because he was like self-consciously trying to knit together a national interest out of the state's interest, he did what they wanted. But the problem for especially the Southerners was, oh no, he's actually creating a central government. No, oh, we didn't want... Like, sorry, idiots, you have to have that. Like, the Federalists were, in like a Marxian sense, the progressive force in the early constitutional era. And you can point out the fact that they were ripping off the, the, the veterans of the revolution and the smallholders in order to, you know, feather the bed of bondholders. Correct. But they were also making it possible for capital to concentrate, which if you don't have it, you have a, a uh, decadent... Uh, stagnant society, which is what uh, antebellum slave culture became, and which is the inevitable byproduct of, 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 of uh, allowing capital to accumulate individually and not allowing capital to become something that can be um, accumulated and uh, dispersed like from a central perspective instead of by, you know, the million fucking individual plantation owners along the Mississippi River. And uh, that, but that anti-federalist notion of unrestrained baronial power, that is the engine of American reaction ever since. And it has manifested itself in different places and in different parties over the history of America. But now it is firmly ensconced and in fact like the governing ethos of the Republican Party. But it was the original motive force of the Democratic Party. But it was, I would say it was the Democratic, uh, it was Tammany really more than anything. It was the Democratic subordination and, uh, and client relationship with the emergent working class of the cities that ensured that over time the Democrats would 
essentially become the Federalist Whig Party of uh, like interventionist government. The anti-federalists thought, because we have all the land, we have basically unlimited land, we don't need government. All these, uh, the government exists to, to like, um, oversee disputes over resources, like, and, uh, you know, police uh, uh, labor relationships. But if you have self-sufficient farms and slave plantations... Although, you know, guys like Jefferson will assure you over time, this incredibly lucrative uh, uh, labor relationship that creates its own completely contained, like, cultural context where it's, it, all of its, like, worst deficiencies become, like, load-bearing psychic structures, it'll just go away over time. That's because they didn't realize how much more profitable cotton would get. But if you have that, if you have like thraldom, where you don't have to worry about politics because politics is the master's whip, or sufficient smallholders who don't have to worry about uh, working for a boss or disputing a paycheck, uh, just getting goods to market, then you basically don't need a government. That was the theory. But you never have all the land. And even if you did... You still have to fucking, like, if you want to be a small-holding, sufficient farmer, you have to be able to sell your surplus. You have to be able to sell your surplus product of your farming. Otherwise, you're just a subsistence farmer. And the whole point is that you can go beyond subsistence to improve land, and invest capital into your land, and buy finished goods. That's the most important thing. Exchanging your agricultural surplus for finished manufactured goods. Where do they make manufactured goods? Jefferson's hated cities. Literally, uh, a, a literally um, symbiotic relationship between city and countryside. And Jefferson says, "Yeah, no, but but it's bad, so it shouldn't exist." Okay, good. That's that'll that's that has anything to do with anything. Fuck out of here. Well, Haiti, uh, somebody asked about Napoleon and Haiti. I mean, one, it's not like the British were better guys at that point. They didn't, they didn't ban slavery until the 1830s. So all of those Caribbean, uh, like the difference between Jamaica and Haiti is Haiti had a fucking rebellion. If J Jamaica had had a rebellion and Jamaica had several very violent, uh, uh, and and like momentarily successful slave uprisings that were brutally suppressed by the British, they would have, they would have done just the horrible stuff that the French did. Uh, but his decision to uh, try to retake Haiti made probably in part because of his the fact that his wife Josephine was a, a descendant of the planters of the big whites of the island was a terrible decision and not and like morally obviously but you know in the context of early nineteenth century uh, morality he's probably about uh, an average for Europeans understandings especially since so much of the uh, the wonderful luxury economy of, of British of French cuisine and and uh, an indulgent life was fueled by agriculture, slave agriculture in the New World. But more than anything, it was a fucking mistake, as Talleyrand said about uh, about the execution uh, of what's his name. It was worse than wrong. It was worse than a crime. It was a mistake. Um, because uh, because he, there was a, f a figure of comparable skill and like mastery of the moment in Haiti 
who could have collaborated with Napoleon in the form of Toussaint. And he wouldn't have known that, you know. Toussaint wanted to meet Napoleon. And honestly, if, he'd, if, he'd, if he had done that, who knows what he would have gotten out of that conversation. Because one of the, the big reason that Napoleon tried to reconquer Haiti is because at that point he thought the only way that he was going to be able to uh, change the balance of power with Europe uh, after uh, Trafalgar was by uh, reinvesting his strategic situation in the Caribbean and like turning the Caribbean like into a French lake. Uh, because at that point, you know, everything past the Mississippi was technically France's. And New Orleans, which is a major port in the Caribbean, was French territory. But the real answer to that strategic question is a lie with Toussaint. What are you doing? But to give, uh, but to give Napoleon a little credit, he did admit when he was on uh, Saint Helena that that was a boner. He shouldn't have done that. And yeah, that's one of the reasons they sold it to us. And that's a big what if. When I talk about contingencies and counterfactuals, what if that what if that back door, that free real estate back door, was closed? Because we weren't in a position to fight the French for the continent. You know, maybe we actually have to reckon with our political problems instead of fantasizing them away and turning us into this nation of fat toddlers who cannot reckon with political conflict because we've never been forced to uh, resolve any. We just find the people who can take it because they don't have political representation in the system. We give it to them hard, be they black, be they Native American, be they immigrant, uh, and, and, or poor, just poor in general. And then uh, everybody else gets a lollipop. But we're out of lollipops. And now we don't know how to deal with politics. But yeah, you want to talk about alternative North America? How about one where Napoleon makes a deal with Toussaint recognizes Haitian independence and then has him invade uh, like uh, Mississippi. Has Toussaint lead a black army into the heart of Mississippi and liberate all those plantations and give people guns? Probably not likely, but you know, you can imagine it. Napoleon wanted to invade Britain. He made several attempts. The, the, they attempted to uh, land troops in Ireland during the, the, the 98 revolution. That was before Napoleon. But there was a long-standing French uh, plans during that whole period to just invade Fr- Britain because it's just, it's, it's so frustrating. If you're Napoleon, how frustrating must it be? Like, you march across all of continental Europe and you just dust the, the, the greatest armies of thousand-year dynasties, and you just bat them away like fucking chess pieces. And then the, this island full of wool merchant, cheese-eating dipshits, these fucking bad-tooth, uh, chinless freaks, these lidless uh, huns who just, like, eat boiled beef on a little shitty collection of islands. You can't just walk over them because they ruled the sea! They ruled the goddamn waves. And what's interesting about the the British domination of the sea is it really didn't even come down to technology or anything. It literally came down to the fact that because they were like the the premier uh, naval power, I mean, they were a fucking island, and they had invested in naval uh, development for a long time, whereas like big continental powers like France were inward looking, they were able to develop a storehouse, like a, a, a storehouse of best practices and um, and skill distribution that just made their crews better. They were better at being seamen. 
They were better at boat shit. They were just better at it. Didn't matter the resource distinctions. Nelson, somebody says Nelson was a psycho. Nelson is one of the most despicable figures I've ever read about, who is traditionally thought of as like a military hero. Because obviously, you know, every everybody who is venerated by history is some sort of criminal or scoundrel, and that's fine. You ha If you're occupying history's stage, you are in the sense, you have to be operating beyond concepts of good and evil, or else what are you doing there? Uh, so you have to judge them that way. But Nelson was just a a glory-hounding psychopath who was willing to risk the lives of everybody uh, for pure personal glory. Like, he is the exactly the type of showboater that, you know, traditional chivalrous masculinity is supposed to look down on. But they got a giant fucking uh, dildo of, with him on it in, in uh, London. He did fuck. He was a notorious... Uh, Coxman, who had a very uh, public uh, scandal about involving improprieties with society ladies. Uh, but he was just a, a complete vainglorious, the kind of character who is um, historically, like, if, you, if they were accurately portrayed, you know, in a, in, a, in a film or something, would be like a stereotype of, of narcissistic vainglory. Very much like Custer. Custer is a similar figure to Nelson. Custer, of course, is not anywhere nearly as good a cavalryman as Nelson was a uh, sailor. I mean, Nelson was actually very good at what he did. Custer was a complete buffoon. But they had a similar uh, just psychotic narcissism. Yes, they did blow up the pillar in Dublin, which I gotta say, that's good on you. That's, that's just good form, in my opinion. That's the thing that people who hate on statue destruction don't get. They say you're destroying history. Like, just pulling a fucking statue down is making history. Now, of course, it should not substitute for politics. And one of the ways you knew that the summer demonstrations were going to peter out without real uh, long-term impact was when they started doing that. But, like, as an isolated incident and as, like, a specifically targeted event, it, it, is, it is historical in its own way. Like, blowing up the fucking Nelson statue in Dublin. That is a historical event. If that thing was still there, how much more boring would that be uh, than, uh, than having the story of it being blown up and his fucking head landing in somebody's garden? Custer's one military exploit with any kind of uh, meaning or uh, behind it, like, any, any, the only real credit in his record is the third day of Gettysburg when he prevented the cavalry uh, attack on the Union rear that was supposed to coincide with Pickett's charge and might have changed, if it had been successful, might have changed the outcome there. But that's about it. Best Civil War general. I mean, that's a weird category. I don't know. I would say... Hmm. There's different ways. So many different ways to say best. There's different ways to like define best. My, th I think that one of the most like, uh, I mean, it's it's annoying that like Stonewall Jackson was genuinely brilliant, but I hate him and I don't want to talk about that. But like Thomas, I'm a big fan of George Thomas, the Rock of Chickamauga. Uh, I mean, he destroyed uh, John Bell Hood's army, but John Bell Hood basically gave him the hammer. But you know, he did a good job at it, nonetheless. Save the Army of Chickamauga, along with uh, August Willich and Ambrose Bierce. We're all there. Defending Snodgrass Hill. Or I don't think they were on Snodgrass Hill. But that's where Thomas was. But they were all at Chickamauga. I'm uh, bringing a Cyber Chalmer to... Uh, well, I mean, first of all, statues are almost never, uh, like, as historically meaningful as, like, a cathedral. I mean, especially when you're talking about American Confederate statues. Those things are mass-produced bronze schlock. They're basically Bob's Big Boys that were all built 
in the early 1900s by the Daughters of the Confederacy. Like that, there, there's much as there's much as like a, a historical, you know, there's as much historical value to them as like a Bob's Big Boy sign. I'm the last of a broken man on a Halifax pier, the last of Everett's privateers. I like George Thomas. Uh, I like Sherman a lot. Uh, I'll always have a soft spot for Grant just because he's such a... Uh, he's a hard guy to, to not sympathize with, for me anyway. He seems like essentially a proto-fail son. He seems like the kind of guy who, he's like a, a model for a guy who was, so here you go, he was given the same lively, he was given the same chances that everybody was in like the fertile, uh, early, uh, the fertile, um, the, the fertile Middle West, you know, or at that point it was like the Northwest uh, in Ohio. You know, his dad was a relatively successful uh, a tanner. Uh you know, he didn't. It was his. It was his family wasn't as poor as like the uh, the Lincolns were even. Uh, but he didn't want to be a tanner. Tanning sucks. And then he he went to West Point because it was a thing to do. He didn't really want to be a soldier. And then he fought in the war. He he found out he's good at some things. The Mexican War. He hated the war he fought in, but he learned some things. He learned how to ride a horse. He was good at that. And he learned he was cool under fire. But then they sent him to garrison a bunch of fucking forts in California in the middle of nowhere, and he just drank himself out of a job, and then he went back to the Midwest, and with the same opportunity that millions of Americans were given to make something of himself, he fucking ate shit at everything. <laughs> Just ate shit at everything. Which is why he is sort of the, the mirror image of McClellan. A guy who had, you know, visioned himself as a military genius since he was a child, and was finished very top of his class at West Point, as opposed to, granted, was a middling student. Uh, and then... Won a few early engagements in West Virginia, which helped allow West Virginia to essentially secede from Virginia, uh, and was heralded in the Eastern press and essentially bought his own hype and went insane, like uh, that Kids in the Hall sketch where uh, Kevin McDonald gets promoted to head uh, the head mail clerk and immediately snaps and like buys giant gold rings and beats people to death. This guy thought that he could march on Washington and overpro the government. He wrote that in a letter, I think, to his wife after getting some good early newspaper clippings. And then he went to confront Lee, and he was so terrified of losing. He was so terrified of failing that he was frozen. Grant had failed his whole life. He wasn't afraid of failing. Somebody wants me to talk about the English Civil War. I might talk about it future because it's a very interesting subject that gets under talked about. But somebody in the comments is saying it's more, that 1688 is more interesting. And you know, if you really think about the English Civil War, like periodization is more important, I think, than trying to keep things pithy. And the same way you could argue that like World War One and Two are part of one larger process. Uh, that. The same is true of the English Civil War and the Glorious Revolution, and you don't, it's really one event. And it is this prolonged crisis of authority in like an, a budding capitalist system that is emerging out of like a decaying feudal husk. And it was a battle over like what is the um, actual like proper place for, um, you know, authority to reside in a merchant social order that is uh, breaking away from the the feudal bonds of, you know, just the old feudal aristocracy and creating a new class. Like, the people who overthrew uh, the king and cut his fucking head off, it was a class, there was a class character. Like, parliamentarians were urban merchants, broadly. There were, of course, big landowners who were parliamentarians. But the base of the New Model Army was that. East Anglian people who were engaged in the new merchant economy that was emerging out of there, England and the Low Countries, what became modern capitalism, at least where I put it, 
like after some fits and starts and early creations, like the thing really kicked into gear there. And they wanted essentially to wrest power away from this old feudal order represented by the king. But it was premature because the fucking social basis for that kind of government didn't exist yet. You still were dealing largely with a feudal, uh, a, a feudally organized society, even though feudalism had been obviously in crisis and collapsed for centuries. It had not yet created an alternative like social mechanism of uh, authority. And so the attempts to stand up parliamentary democracy without a, an attendant social formation immediately collapsed. And Cromwell kept having to fucking step back in. I know that there's some, it's obviously very self-serving the way that he always acted like, oh, I'm being forced to intervene back here. Uh, but I honestly do feel like if they could have put together a viable parliamentary order, Cromwell would have Washingtoned it. But he couldn't. He couldn't. Washington was able to walk away because the social uh, base existed to stand up a parliamentary democracy in America. That didn't exist in the 1650s. And so he just had to basically be the king with no, without a name, and that was not going to last. And then so they bring back the royals, but they bring back with the royals all the old questions about the Catholic Church as a stand-in for medieval authority, you know, and bringing in those Dutchmen, because the Dutch people actually were the ones who invented the fucking, uh, like, concept of a, uh, a merchant-based uh, capitalist economic order. Like, that's where the stock market first opened. That's where the first joint stock company was chartered. And the British essentially just took it from them. Like, when the fucking uh, royal fleet uh, sw- uh, sailed into New York Harbor and went up to Peter Stuyvesant's one-legged ass and said, hey, bitch, we're taking this from you, and we're changing the name, too. And so they say, hey, you guys, you know how you guys actually were forming these structures before us even? Can we just borrow your king, your king who's been like kind of capitalized, kind of soyified as it were, Protestantized? And we'll, we'll take him. We'll, we'll take him from you. We'll take him off your hands. Well, their ruling class or whatever, their, 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 their gentry had learned their lesson. What are the what is the chat fighting about? Someone's fighting. I need to resolve this chat fight before I log off. When are the Packers playing? I haven't really watched a game this year. I will not I will not lie. But I try to watch the playoffs. Apparently there's one dumbass in the chat. God damn them all. I was told we'd sail the seas for American gold. We'd fire no guns, shed no tears. Now I'm a broke man on a Halifax pier, the last of Eric's privateers. I might watch. We'll see. People seem to be talking about what's cringe. You, I think that as well, I am guilty of having used that word and trafficked in cringe talk, but you really have to kill that concept if you're ever going to be able to act. Because all action is cringe. All acts can be abstracted away from the context where they make sense and turned into something embarrassing. And if you worry all the time about your actions not being cringeworthy, you will never be able to do anything. That's basically what uh, what David Foster Wallace's entire corpus was about. How cringe is is uh, is essentially social the, the most essential postmodern post cap post industrial mechanism of control. Ah, the Putney debate. Won't we love it, folks? We love the put. We love the dig- diggers. We love the levelers too, don't we? We love them. 
Jaron Winstanley, who was uh, the spiritual founder of the, the Diggers in the aftermath of the English Civil War, or the interregnum, I guess, before the final glorious triumph of, uh, of Anglo-Dutch Protestant capitalism over uh, Anglo-Irish uh, land-based feudalism. But Jared Winstanley, uh, he wrote uh, a pamphlet where he essentially prefigured Marx's theory of class struggle as the engine of history. Uh, what, 150 years before Marx did? Uh, or 200 years? Yeah, like 200 years. 16, yeah, 16, yeah. Uh, and he says that as long as, as long as some labor for others, like his basic premise is that like, as long as some labor for others, they will be in conflict because that relationship cannot be one of equality. It is one of uh, coercion and a mutual animosity and distrust that come from that. And of course, his answer was, you know, a kingdom of God where all, where the need to accumulate is removed by the desire to uh, uh, the desire to live in communion with everybody. And of course, you know, that's essentially what communism would have to be. And I would argue it will have to have some sort of spiritual component. I don't think it can be anything connected to a his, existing structure of faith, though, because they are too culturally segregated. But it's going to have. There's going to have to be an infusion of meaning into public life, in order to allow people to make a new deal, essentially, where you trade time for stuff. And people don't want time instead of stuff, unless that time has as much value as the stuff does. And because our time is completely. Uh, uh, useless to us, our time, what, our time to what? Look at our phones? Our time to be miserable and be anxious? Our time to worry? Our time to be disconnected from one another? Our time to pursue pleasures that lose their enjoyment with every indulgence? That time? Why would we want, give me stuff. Give me stuff. The time has to have, you have to be able to, to spend that time meaningfully in order for that to make it be a, be a good deal for people. And that's what's so heartbreaking about QAnon is that in many respects, QAnon is the sort of popular grafting of alienation and, uh, and disillusionment with the current economic order with a spiritualized like will to power. You know, they're able to do what they do because they believe they will win. They believe they're right and they'll believe they win. They can win, which is something that no one on the left believes, either of those things. They, if they're right, they don't know. They're in a constant, content, a constant personal crisis about whether or not they're right. And not knowing if they're right inhibits their actions at every move. Uh, and they certainly don't think they can win. Uh, and the left needs that. The left needs that. But, I mean, what they don't have to, go, to, to lean on that the Q people do is... I mean, Q was made by... A combination of, honestly, at some point, at some point, the government got involved in Q. There's no question. I don't know who started it, but at some point, the government got involved somewhere. At not maybe the level of distributing the actual proofs, but at some level of, of, of psyoping around it. Because why wouldn't you? It doesn't make sense. I mean, especially when you consider the hilarious number of actual, literal, deep state psyopers who are deeply enmeshed in the QAnon at one level or another. But it was also a consumer response. It was a consumer demand being met by the market. And leftism can never be a consumer demand left, met in the market. That is the problem. And a lot of the people who get mad at the left, like the left, they don't want to win. It's a culture of narcissism. It's a bunch of fucking babies. That's all true, but... If you're making that point to condemn people and judge them, it's you're just wasting fucking breath because you're operating in a much more constrained political context. You cannot depend on the spectacleized gibberish that people uh, power wash their eyeballs with 24 hours a day to reveal a path towards like effective anti-capitalist action. That's absurd. Why would it do that?
at least absent like a real coordinated effort, you know, like a ground, a, a, a grassroots and like a movement moving towards one another, which we don't have, if it's just going to like emerge spontaneously from engagement with the media and the marketplace, you're just going to end up at Q because Q is like every good pyramid scheme and cult, which are basically the same thing, and in many cases are literally the same thing in this country, uh, you need to get people to get involved through their self-interest. And what motivates these people to become Q evangelists is, yes, meaning, yes, belief, but that's only going to get people to commit so much. What they also get is a chance to market themselves or their products. Apparently one of the biggest Q uh, decoders is some failed screenwriter from New Jersey. The Q shaman is a failed actor. People all have, res they all have CVs and headshots, or they've got a fucking uh, trunk full of uh, herbal supplements that they want to get you to sell for them. Those motivations reinforce one another, but only towards the direction of madness and uh, gibbering uh, uh, savagery because it's it's America's broken psyche looking in the mirror the only what, what it has to emerge to counter that has to be coherent and it has to be in opposition to the existing fucking sewer grade of information that people swim in it has to be counter hegemonic and what I argue against people like the uh those MMT kids who interviewed me for their podcast, is that that counter-hegemonic uh, uh, like feedback loop cannot be built from within existing media structures and the existing social media structure most specifically because they are designed to produce the opposite of what you're trying to fucking create. I'm sorry I put that white claw right there Looked like I was doing sponsored content. I swear to God, I'm not. Uh, it is somebody. Uh, somebody said I, they were chilled by the sight of me drinking, drinking a white claw because I embodied white privilege while I was doing it. I think that uh, like status anxiety about white claw really tells you that everybody is just on here making themselves nervous, like Victorian housewives, like I read from uh, the book last week, who all had nervous exhaustion because they were too, they were too bored. They were bored house cats who gave themselves anxieties and things to worry about. We are similarly restrained in our ability to express ourselves, and we, but we have the internet to give us uh, anxiety and fainting spells and, and nervous exhaustion. And so what do we do? We like, oh, people like me drink white cast white claw, but I hate people like me. Because people like me are me without any of the uh, extenuating circumstances that let me give myself a break. Everybody else around me is just me and my worst. So I can't uh, I have to like create some elaborate justification either for drinking white claw or not doing it. I just enjoy it because uh, beer is a little too hoppy usually for me. I like a sweet treat. I like it a little sweet. All right, folks, I'm going to sign off. It's been real. Uh, don't do any honk pilling that I wouldn't do.